is dead. This is God's word to us this morning. You can be seated. I first need to start off and make great apologies. Um, Earlier, whenever I gave a list of some of our global partnerships, I left some off the list, and Dwight Johnson um, is a global partner of ours. The Johnson family is our global partners of ours in Taiwan, and the Yoders are also partners of ours uh, in uh, the Middle East, um, as well as um, Ted and Donna Clibbins serve faithfully up in Canada. Yes, Canada is another part of, it's not part of the United States of America, so therefore we consider them global partners. And, uh, and that just further proves the point that we as a church need to do better at who we support. So, um, so thank you for, for being patient and gracious with me. I also am fully aware that Harvest Community Church is a pokey stop. So uh, for some of you in this room, uh, it will be embarrassing if I catch you catching Pokemons during the service, and I will call you out. So uh, it, just know that. Uh, for those of you who don't know what I'm talking about, Google it, and when you do, you'll be more confused than uh, when I first started talking about it. Uh, anyway, this is my encouragement to not catch Pokemons during the service. Uh, just felt like it needed to be said, you know, throwing it out, just throwing it out there. We are back into James, obviously, this morning. In uh, the beginning of June, uh, I think it was June 12th, we started a three-week series that dove, it, 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 it led us into James, and we spent three weeks talking about some really important things, and what we saw from James is that, that he has laid the foundation that faith is a firm, unswerving commitment to God through Christ. It's all about faith. It's all about having authentic faith is the words that we have been using in this series. And the way that we've described authenticity, because again, it's one of those cultural catchphrases that we don't really know what it means unless we stop and think about it. So when we're talking about being, uh, having authentic faith, we live in the same way that we talk. We believe and we live in the same way. And that's what James is so good at and he's driving us to see. When we started this series, we pointed out that James is a popular book among many Christians. They love reading James. Many people have even taken the time to memorize the book of James. And the reason is, is because James is extremely practical, while a lot of Paul's writing, so Paul wrote 13 books of the 27 in the New Testament, Paul's writing is really theoretical. It takes more brain power to get what he's saying, but when you get it, it's one of those, man, the theology is deep, and it's rich, and it's extremely good. So going back to this side, many people have said that James doesn't have deep theology. He's really just practical. I think that that's selling James short, as we've kind of been proving and will continue to prove this morning. So we started off our first week looking at the first half of James chapter 1, seeing that we need to have sustainable faith, faith that walks through tough things as God gives wisdom to make us strong and complete as followers of him. The second week, as we finished out chapter 1, we talked about being doers of the word of God. In the midst of that statement, the thing that we focus on the most is the word of God. 
The word of God is what changes us. When we read God's word, God illuminates it in our hearts and he brings it and he makes it alive inside of us and we become naturally doers of his word when we see it and we invest in it and we know God's word. And one way, one strong way that that plays out, James pointed us to in our third week, is to notice how we are unintentionally divisive as a culture. And that is especially true here in 2016. And that sermon may be more relevant preached today in the world that we live in, even though it's three weeks later, that we as followers of Jesus need to be united together in the love of Christ for those in our community and our neighbors and our world because God wants to do great things through us. Do you believe that? Amen. Today's point could start off seeming a little not as happy, but man, this is what makes James so good. He doesn't kid around. He goes right to the point. Three verses in what we just read kind of highlight the thing that James wants to say with inside of these verses. Look at verse 14. What good is it, my brother, if someone says he has faith, but he does not have works? Skip down to verse 24. You see that a person is justified by works and not by faith alone. There's a lot to unpack right there. Verse 26, for as the body apart from the spirit is dead, so also faith apart from works is dead. So the main point that we're driving to today is faith without works is dead. We have to see what James is saying to understand its context in the entire scripture. What James is saying on the very surface level, that if we do not have works, if our life does not reflect the glory of God, if we have not been changed from the inside out, then we are dead. Scripture is littered throughout uh, with the truth that we cannot lose our salvation. Once we are redeemed by our Heavenly Father, the Gospels tell us that the hand of Christ comes around and wraps us and protects us. And Romans 8 tells us that nothing can take us from the Father's hand. So we know that once we are saved, we are never stripped away. But there are many dangers in us believing that we are followers of Jesus when we've actually never experienced the redeeming love of Christ. And we'll dive into that more in a, in a little bit. And if we've never had works, then our faith is dead. Dead means dead. Dead means never alive. So we need to understand, and there's a big warning to us today, to look at our faith and ask, is it sustainable? Is it something that's real? Is it something that's active? Have I seen Jesus in my life? Has fruit been produced from who I am because of who Christ is in me? That's what James is leading us to see and to know and to know well. So, one of the monkeys in the room whenever we read scriptures like this as we compare James to the Apostle Paul. If you're familiar with Apostle Paul and his writings, we know that all 13 books, he leans on justification by faith alone. He says it extremely clear. 
But as we read in verse 24, James says that we are not saved by faith alone. So the big question is, is are these two texts contradicting each other, or is there something greater going on inside the Word of God? It is good, and it is healthy to notice things like this and start questioning and asking what is going on here. It doesn't make you less of a Christian if you question the things that you read inside this book. It actually makes you a little bit stronger in your faith when you ask questions like that, trusting that God's going to give you the answers and show you when you start pursuing these deep, true, and scary truths of his word. So for us to ask this question, we got to ask, is James contradicting Paul? If not, what is going on? Could we both be misreading Paul and misreading James? And could God bring us to a deeper understanding of what it is to be his child, to be adopted into his family? So Romans is littered with great truth about justification by works, I'm sorry, by grace and by faith alone. But let's look at another text of Paul's and just see a minute what he's doing. If you got your Bibles, turn to Ephesians chapter 2. This is a chapter I lean on frequently. I love it. It encourages me. I want to break it up and read it in sections. Let's just start with the meat of what Paul gets to, and let's just look at the idea of works and faith. Right there, Ephesians 2, and let's jump down to 8 and 9. A well-known passage by many people. It reads, For by grace you have been saved through faith. This is a not uh, sorry, this is not your own doing. It is a gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one can boast. Are you saved by your works? Okay, church, I'm gonna ask you again. Are you saved by your works? No. No, absolutely not. Paul gets to it right here. And it is super clear. But let's read it one more time again. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing. It is a gift of God, not a result of your work, so that no one can boast. Let's look at the bigger picture. What is Paul talking about in Ephesians chapter 2? Man, this paints one of the most beautiful stories of redemption that I've ever come across in Scripture until I come across the next one, then I'll tell you that's the most beautiful. But, uh, you know, that's what pastors do. Uh, so let's just start at the very top of chapter 2, verse 1. And it's going to talk, these verse, three verses are going to talk a lot about who we are apart from Christ. Let's see this. Paul says in Ephesians chapter 2, And you were dead in your trespasses and your sin. This is truth. This is fact. It's reflected all through Scripture in which you once walked following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, that spirit is now at work in the sons of disobedience. This isn't talking about some human beings. This is talking about all human beings. We are all sinners, fallen short of God's glory. We all identify with what Paul is saying right here. Verse 3 among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, we were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. All mankind deserves God's wrath. If you start talking about what you deserve, that's the answer. I never let my kids growing up saying, well, that's just not fair. They probably hated me, but I was like, you can't say that because if you got what's fair, I start 
theology at, you know, at age one and two. You get what's fair, you're going to hell. You can't say that. Oh, want to bet? It's in the Bible. Uh, anyway, <laughs> just, just speaking truth, taking it seriously to raise my children in the Lord. Um, but that's who we are. We're nature, or we're by nature children of wrath. But the great thing is the text doesn't end there. There's actually a verse four that follows verse three. Let's check it out. But God, again, my youth are probably tired of me saying this because I read this frequently, but God, but God, being rich in mercy because of the great love in which he has loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you have been saved and raised up with him, and seated with him in the heavenly places, and in Christ, so that at, um, uh, sorry, in the heavenly places in Christ, so that in the coming age he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness towards us in Christ. We are by nature children of God's wrath, but God in his great richness and in his great love has made himself known to us and he saved us through the cross, through Christ Jesus. He has redeemed us and he's brought us to himself and he says, you are my child and I love you and I will never ever let you go. And is this something you accomplish by yourself? He says, absolutely not. As we read verse eight and nine again, he says, for by grace you have been saved through faith. This is not of your own doing. It is the gift of God, not the results of work so that anyone can boast. You did nothing to deserve this or to earn this. God lavished it upon you because of his own free will, and it is good, and it is great. We like to stop reading there because we feel filled, don't we? But then there's a verse 10, which is still good, but we got to read it. For we are his workmanship, created by Christ Jesus for what? Good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Is Paul and James saying two different things? No, not at all. We love as a culture to read grace and it just frees me to do whatever I want. The biggest curse that we have in this culture, forgive me if I offend you, but oh well, uh, is grace. One of the greatest gifts we've ever had is grace. One of the biggest curses we've ever had is grace because we could just sit back and say, well, there's grace for that. I could just be who I want to be. That is not what scripture is driving us to. That is not what Paul writes about when he talks about justification by faith alone. In the context in which James is writing, he is pointing out people's small faith and saying, you were created for something so much more. Stop having such small faith. This grace that is the greatest gift is supposed to drive us to good works because of the work that has been done in our hearts and in our lives. I was reading in a commentary this week, and I'm going to read this short paragraph to you because it says it best by itself without me trying to translate it. It says, faith, not what we do, is fundamentally in, uh, is, uh, is, sorry, I'm going to start over. Faith, not what we do, is fundamental in establishing a relationship with God. But faith, James insists, must be given content, 
Genuine faith, he insists, always and inevitably produces evidence of his existence in a life of righteous living. Biblical faith cannot exist apart from acts of obedience to God. James makes such a point of this because he has come to realize that some Christians misunderstanding Paul's teachings were taking an extreme narrow view of faith, confining it to a verbal profession. One of the greatest things that we've done as a church, Big C Church, is had altar calls. If Jesus is speaking to your life, come forward and receive because it allows you to be free to the Spirit to just respond. It's great. But the curse that's come from that is we think that if we sign a card or we walk down an aisle, we are saved. That's it. We're done. We checkmark the box. James is saying, no way that was what you were ever created for. God created you for something so much greater than just coming forward for one-time profession of faith. So let's make this idea of faith a little bit more tangible what is it, I'm sorry, not faith, the idea of works a little bit more tangible? What does it mean for us? How does this play out in our own lives? What kind of connection can we make? Let's take this big theory idea of works and make it real and bring it down to us. Is it just about serving other people as James gives the example of? When someone's hungry or they're cold and we just say, go, peace, be warm and be filled? Is, is that what works looks like? Maybe, but I think we're missing the bigger picture just by focusing on his example. We need to dig deeper into the example and dig deeper into scripture to say, what are works? When anger is the number one sin that you struggle with and you stop and you pause when you feel angry, and you choose love in the moment over anger, that is work. When your world is so fast-paced that you forget to see your kids. I mean, you see them every day right in your house, but you forget to see them, and you decide to pause, take a break from life, and just let things fall to the side so that you can invest in your kids and you walk away from just spending time with them filled with joy, that is work. When little things drive you nuts and you decide to choose, to pick and choose your battles wisely, you exemplify patience. That's work. When you walk down the streets in downtown Portland and you walk past a group of people without homes and you're naturally, normally just ignore them, marginalize them, pretend like they don't exist, but you decide one day to walk past them, try to make eye contact and just say hello. In other words, I see you. You're a human being. You're created in God's image, and I see you. That exemplifies kindness, and that's work. When you stand at the altar with your forever 
and you look at each other and you say your I do's and you promise and in sickness and in health till death do you part. You commit to one another and then 15 years down the line, you look at yourself and you ask yourself, what in the world have I become? You feel so unlovable or you look at your spouse and you say, who in the world am I married to? But remembering that marriage, the commitment you made 15 years prior, was never ultimately about you and your feelings. But ultimately, your marriage displays the marriage between Christ and his bride, the church, and you choose faithfulness till death do you part. And you find something you never found when you choose that. That is work. When lust overwhelms your mind like it so often does and you find yourself alone in a room with a computer available, you shut it down and you walk away, you choose self-control. That's work. Notice that my examples that I give reflect the spirit of the fear. It's just fruit of the spirit. I couldn't even do that again if I wanted to. Thank you. It's on the podcast. Uh, okay. Notice that it reflects the fruit of the Spirit. We read James, and sometimes we read about works, and we get so overwhelmed with what do I do? How do I love Jesus? I don't know how to respond. And we just say, to heck with it. I feel so overwhelmed. But really, as Paul leads us, we are just called to live by the fruit of the Spirit. And when we do so, notice that your choices of reflecting God's love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control is not actually you working at all. As Paul says in Galatians chapter 5, this is the Spirit at work in you causing you to do things you naturally don't do. But when we see ourselves choosing love, choosing self-discipline, choosing control, choosing patience, whatever it is that you choose, when we see ourselves choosing those things, we can pause, take a step back and say, all glory to you, God, for allowing me to love my kid. All glory to you, God, for allowing me to see someone that I normally wouldn't see. All glory to you when I made a choice that I naturally would make if it was left up to me, but because of you, I chose something righteous and holy. It wasn't because of me, but it was because of your spirit. Faith without works is dead. But let's get real as we close our time today. More times than not, the majority of us in this room we don't experience those times of being in the spirit as much as we experience feeling like a failure. Maybe I'll say it this way. Maybe the takeaways of life are those things don't happen as much. The good things don't happen as much as us feeling like failures. When in reality, those are few and far between, but their voice is so much louder in our lives. How do we battle the overwhelming feeling of our sin. And I want to close by just giving us three potential reasons why we feel overwhelmed by our sin. And to do so, I got to just use a song that we just sang as an example. Jesus paid it all. 
Right there at the very beginning, I hear the Savior say, my strength indeed is small. Child of weakness, watch and pray. Find in me thine all in all. Here's where I get freedom, feelings of freedom, but as well as feelings of tripped up. Jesus paid it all. All to him I owe. Sin has left a crimson stain, but he's washed it white as snow. I love standing in a worship setting such as this with my hands held high and praising Jesus in that moment as I feel so forgiven and free in that moment. But the reality sets in that when I leave this posture, when I leave this place, I'm going to choose myself again. And how in the world has Jesus washed me clean whenever I'm going to go back and choose my filth over and over again? Last week when we sang this song, that's what entered into my mind. I pictured myself standing on the edge of a white water rapid, maybe because we just left our mission trip where we went white water rafting, and, and I've seen more water recently than I have in a very long time. But this is the picture that was in my head as I was standing on the bank of this white water river, right where things get extremely crazy. And I envisioned if I could hold my sin in my hand and just envisioning Jesus washing it away. So what do I do to get him to to wash it away. Well, I got to put it in the river, and when I put it in the river and let it go, Jesus just washes it away. That is great imagery, and it is true, but man, that sin tends to just come back around to me, and I suffer. And I've asked myself time and time again, how in the world can I find myself at this place? Again, I've let that go. Jesus has washed me clean. Why is it still around? I don't know if you've ever felt that as much as I have, but man, that's what I was overwhelmed with last week, and Jesus spoke beautiful truth to me. And I want to give three potential reasons of why we feel overwhelmed by our sin. First and foremost, it's potentially that we've never had faith to begin with, that we've stood at the river's edge, and we've held our sins in our hand, and we've never actually put it in the river. We've never actually confessed it. We've actually never dealt with it. We've just held on to it, and instead of just holding on to it, you put it behind your back, or we put it behind our back, and we just pretend like it doesn't exist anymore. My friends, that's not the way Jesus works. There are so many people who call themselves followers of Jesus, but they have never dealt with their sin. And by my Bible standards, that's not a definition of a Christian. So our faith in those moments are dead. The second example is maybe we stood at the, the river's edge and we put our hand in the water and we felt so insecure in that moment. We didn't know if we wanted to let it go. We didn't know if we let it go, is it going to find its way back again? We found ourselves in this pendulum swing of like happy and sad. We don't, don't know where we land, so we get so insecure in our relationship with Jesus that we just end up holding on to our sin tighter and tighter when we want to let it go. Maybe you've experienced letting certain sins go or this particular sin go at moments and it's come back again and again and we just fight ourselves. Maybe that's who we are. I know that's who I've been at times. Last, maybe our sin is just too real and we let it go. There's just a string attached to it and it just never really get washed away. 
when we read in Scripture time and time again where God is saying to his children, I love you. No, 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 you don't get it. Whenever I say I love you, I'm not saying I love all humanity. I'm saying I love you as an individual. I love you. I choose you. I've redeemed you. I know your sin intimately, and I still choose you. And in those moments, we just don't know what to do because the sin is way too real. But we just end up pulling it back, pulling it back because we don't know how to experience true freedom. This is why, this is why we need the gospel every single day. It overwhelmed me with that imagery because I had it all wrong. Your hand does not go in the river to let sin go and it comes back out. Brothers and sisters, we jump in the river and we stand in the river for eternity. The gospel is not something we hear one time in our lives and we respond to and we're good, as some may call that fire insurance, right? That's not the gospel at all. But scripture points to us needing the gospel every single day. This is why we come to church at least once a week is to hear the gospel preached over and over again. Not because you don't know it, it's because we need to hear it. We need to know where we need to stand and where we need to be. We need to stand in the river and be washed clean. As sins come our way and they attach ourselves, we release it and we just let Jesus take it away. Yeah, I'm going to go and choose that sin again, but I'm standing in the river. As you stand in the river, we have the ability then to take our eyes off of our sin, our focus and our attention off of our sin, and place it where it belongs, on the cross of Jesus Christ, and we stop pursuing what's right in front of us, and we look at what's ahead, and that's what we pursue. And when we pursue that, our sin becomes small and we stop choosing it as frequent as we do and we see it eventually being washed away fully just for God to show you that you have more sins. This is good. This is right. When we see Jesus, we then become doers of the word and we then live by works and we look at Jesus and say, thank you for working in me and through me, and I pray that someone sees it around me. Fill me for your glory and for your namesake. Let's pray. God, thank you for knowing myself better than I could ever know myself. Thank you for continuing to never be done with me, but to continue to show me the power of your word in the gospel and how it plays in and out of my life. As much as I've rested in scripture and I love reading your word, you never cease to amaze me with how you bring it alive and its words just impact me in a great way. Father, I pray that this morning that we would experience your freedom as we stand in the river. In that posture of us standing, not looking at our sin anymore, but looking to the cross and finding freedom there as we stand, Jesus, and we feel our sins just lift off of our shoulders and go away, I pray that then in that moment we can be exactly what James is talking about, doers of the word, someone who lives by works because of you working in and through us, not because of us trying to prove something to you. Jesus, as we close and worship today, we stand with arms lifted 
exalted high, not offering you anything, but offering you absolutely nothing and saying, please fill us with your spirit and fill us with your truth. Free us, God, from our own sin nature and show us who we are in you as you need to do every single day. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.